Welcome to Boiling Point. Tonight I'm taking you to the Pint of Science Festival. The festival features talks of scientists of different areas of research and presents them to non-scientists in a jargon-free, relaxed atmosphere with a pint of beer. We will be tuning into a talk on the secrets of animals and how they deal with climate change or struggle to do so. This talk happened at the Botany View Hotel in Sydney on the 9th of May. You'll listen in in just a moment. Welcome back to Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM. I'm your host Kat and we will be listening in to the talk of Patrice Potier, who is a PhD student in ecology and evolution at UNSW. Patrice loves surfing and says about himself that he's great at snapping surfboards in half on the water. Please listen in to his talk. Thanks, Kat. Um, thanks everyone. So, as the title says, I'm going to dive into how animals cope with climate change, or at least some parts of it. Um, so, you can see from the theme that this is a pretty depressing talk. Uh, so, I'm going to try to end with a touch that is a bit more optimistic, uh, so we don't cry and we still keep our focus for the next talk. Alright, so uh, as some of you may have seen, uh, the, later, the latest IPCC report has been issued this year. And IPCC stands for Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's basically a group of scientists summarizing uh, data and publications, thousands of publications, to see what's the state of the Earth and what, uh, how it's going to change in the, in the years to come. Um, and if you read this report, you'll probably cry before you finish it. Uh, it's really long, it's about thousands of pages. But some of the highlights you see in this report is that extreme heat events, so heat waves, are predicted to be 14 times more likely by the end of the century, and that um, they are predicted to be also more intense, so about 3 degrees Celsius. And this is only the moderate warming scenarios. If we look at extreme warming scenarios, they will be 40 times more likely, and the temperature will be about 6 degrees higher. So this is a really bad picture. When I see this, I'm wondering, how am I going to survive in those heat waves when currently I'm struggling to cope with 45 degrees? Uh, and probably that's a question a lot of animals on this planet is asking. And currently a lot of animals are suffering from temperature, and the climate change that is happening and that will continue to happen poses a threat to them. Um, and so this is the question that's around my PhD. How are animals going to cope with climate change? But what I mean by animals is not all animals. And I'm generally a very indecisive person, so I uh, can't make decisions, and if you ask me which you have to pick, it took me 10 minutes to get one. Um, but when I choose something, uh, I usually try to get it broad, something very safe. So in my case, I studied 99% of the animal biodiversity, instead of focusing on one species. And all these animals that you see on these slides are frogs, amphibians in general, so salamanders as well, uh, reptiles, invertebrates, and fish. And so a big group of animals called ectotherms, and ecto means external, and therm means temperature. So it just means that their body temperature will track the changes in temperature of the external environment. So as opposed to us, where we have a body temperature that is about 37.5 degrees Celsius, these animals' body temperature fluctuates all the time. And if it's warm outside, it will be warm in their body. And that's one of the reasons why I don't like this term, cold-blooded animals, which is a synonym to uh, ectotherms, because sometimes the blood is actually pretty warm, and even warmer than us. So this is a really bad synonym, and the next time you see cold-blooded animals, you may think twice before you use that word. But unfortunately, I'm not studying birds and mammals, which are animals that can measure their body temperature. 
And so your favorite Pukhavara or your favorite Wombat won't be in this talk, although I can, we can still talk about it and see analogies between ectotherms and animals that have constant body temperature. Um, and so as I said, ectotherms have this, uh, their body temperature will depend on the temperature of the environment. So here I've just put a hypothetical example where we have an environment with a, le a linear uh, gradient in temperature. And this Australian giant cuttlefish you may have seen during the snowball uh, will have different body temperature depending on where it sits. But even though their body temperature can fluctuate with the environment, you may expect that there's a limit to it. And this limit in the scientific literature is called CT max. Uh, so this is an acronym for critical maximum temperature, and it's basically a temperature beyond which these animals will overheat. And because you can expect that if they have a blood at 46 degrees Celsius, for example, they may have a hard time. Uh, and so I'm interested in synthesizing this data. What is the CT max of most of the animals on this planet? And can it tell us about their future uh, under climate change? And right now we know that most animals on this planet are experiencing temperatures that are about the, the value of CT max, the tolerance to temperature. And uh, climate change may worsen the situation and put them under very extreme uh, heat stress. And so I'm interested in how they can adapt. Is there a way they can adjust this CT max so that they can cope with the changes temperature, uh, the changes in temperature climate change will bring? Or will they still stay the same, uh, stay the same and climate change will pose a threat to them? And so there's three ways animals can basically respond to climate change. The first way is to just get out of here. And they will just move to different habitats that are cooler so they don't experience temperature that are really warm. But of course this has some inconvenience because they will face predation or some, uh, some other predators, some other environments that are uh, pretty detrimental to them. The second way is through uh, evolution, genetic adaptation. But this takes generations and generations. It's a very slow mechanism. So we can't expect evolution to be a suitable mechanism for these animals to sustain themselves under very uh, extreme climates. And so the third way to go is through acclimatization or acclimation. And so you may have heard this term usually when we talk about altitude. And so if you're a keen hiker and you decide to climb the Everest tomorrow, or maybe a few weeks, uh, you can't climb from the bottom to the top in a few days. What you need to do is to stop at different altitudes in base camps for multiple weeks so your body can acclimatize and accustom to this very low oxygen concentration you observe at high altitudes. And so what's happening in this base camp is that your blood cell count will increase, your, your respiration rate and your heart rate will increase as well so you can better assimilate oxygen. And so then you can climb the Everest, usually with bottles of oxygen anyway because it's so low, but it can still help you to spend this time in those base camps. Why well, in my case, I'm not interested in altitude, I'm interested in temperatures, but it's a very similar mechanism. And to give you an analogy, I'm gonna ask you to project yourself into those two environments. One is in your Australian outback in the middle of summer, and one is in winter in Sweden. And those are happening at the same time because we are in the southern hemisphere, we are in the northern hemisphere. How would you feel if you were in these two environments without folks, and how long do you think you could survive? Well, if you want to ask me, I'll be pretty bad in Sweden. I think <laughs> I'm really bad at tolerating cold, uh, and I won't be really good in the outback anyway, but I think I can tolerate a bit, uh, heat a bit longer than cold. But I think this, this question I just asked you will depend on where you're from. And so if you're born and raised in Sweden, and you come to Australia from this winter temperature directly in the middle of the outback, I'm pretty sure you're not going to be able to survive even two minutes before crying and just going back home. Um, and so, what I'm studying is actually what happens when this Swedish person comes to Australia for a long time. If 
this thing for multiple weeks, will they be able to adjust and better tolerate those temperatures? And what's happening is this accumulation uh, or acclimatization cure, if you prefer that word. But they're pretty much the same. Uh, and so will this Swedish person reach the same levels of uh, tolerance to temperature, same level of CT max as an Australian person that grew up in very warm temperatures for most of the time? Well, although in Australia, winter is pretty cold in the outback. <laughs> this, is, this is an analogy. And so what I'm looking at then is to see whether this acclimation capacity, this capacity to adjust how you tolerate heat, varies with temperature. And so we can look at the temperature that animals are going to experience with climate change and see whether their capacity to tolerate, to tolerate temperatures will follow the same path. And if we have a situation like this, we can see that acclimation is a very good mechanism that will allow these animals to buffer the impacts of climate change. But if we observe something a bit more like that, like the CT max or the tolerance to temperature is pretty constant. That doesn't vary too much with temperatures of the environment, which means that they have a low acclimation capacity and that potentially they will not be able to survive in a changing world. But before we dive into those projections, we first need to have a good knowledge about how species respond, how much they can acclimate, and the differences within the same species even of how animals acclimate. And that's what I did in the first two chapters of my PhD. And the first thing I did is to look at differences between sexes, between males and females. And uh, I'm not trying to look at like gender differences or something a bit controversial. In animals, it's really important to look at those differences because if one sex will suffer more from climate change than the other, it will uh, create a disbalance uh, with climate change, or maybe it will affect their reproduction rate or how the population will evolve and adapt to changing temperatures. And to give you an analogy, at USW, we have this massive open space where there's a lot of air conditioning, and cats will tell you. Um, and so if you ask all the females in this office, all of them are freezing cold. The cat has a heater on all day. <laughs> a lot of people have blankets. But if you ask the males, they're pretty fine. And so there's clearly a difference in sensitivity to temperature depending on sexes. And we wonder if it was the case in animals. And whether this capacity to adjust how you can tolerate, can you get accustomed to these temperatures? Uh, will vary between sexes. And then I looked at differences between uh, life stages with age. So do embryos, juveniles, or adults vary in how they cope with temperature and how they can adapt to those temperatures? So let's uh, look at the differences between sexes first. Uh, and I'm going to take a guess. So raise your hand if you think that females are better at acclimating to temperatures than males. Yeah. Who thinks males are better? <laughs> who, who thinks they're pretty equal? Two person? So you guys are right. <laughs> Actually, males and females are pretty similar in how they handle temperatures. Not in their absolute, uh, in how they can tolerate temperature, but how they can adjust their current temperature depending on the temperature they experience. So overall, but most of the time females are actually, in the cases where you see differences, usually females are a bit better than males. But overall, they are pretty similar. Okay, what about uh, differences between life stages. Who thinks embryos are better at acclimating than other life stages? No one. Who thinks juveniles are probably best? Juveniles, yeah. Who thinks adults are best? Yeah. So actually, as as the crowd is <laughs> saying, embryos are the absolute worst at acclimating to temperatures. Actually, their CT max, so their capacity to tolerate heat, is pretty flexible to what they experience. And so they have a very strict uh, tolerance to temperatures, and no matter the, temp the temperature they experience, is not going to change. 
but juveniles and adults can somehow uh, regulate how they can tolerate temperatures, and usually adults are a bit better than juveniles. Okay, so, uh, but is that enough to compensate for the impacts of climate change? Well, if we put on a fight between adults, which are the most, uh, the life stage that can adapt the most, against this evil climate change, well, the adults will lose. And that tells a lot about embryos and juveniles that are even worse. And so what we see is that most animals on this planet have a very low capacity to adjust how they tolerate heat. And so the person coming from Sweden and the person coming from Australia will have a very similar capacity to tolerate heat. Maybe if you bring the Swedish person for long enough in Australia, they will still remain the same. And so that's pretty concerning. And to me, uh, it, really, it really hits me sometimes in my research because it's, it's quite depressing. But I'm going to end up with a little bit of hope. So what can we do about this? How can we change things? And I think the best thing we can do is to invest in habitat conservation. Because I, I tell you that ectotherms have this capacity to adjust their body temperature depending on the temperature of the environment. So what if we provide environments that are cooler than usual? What if we provide ponds, habitats with shade, or shelters or rock piles so that they can hide from those temperatures, deep burrows, and and uh, not, ex not experience heat waves in the first place. So I think that's really a really good way of protecting those animals. And also yourself, you could actually create new habitats. If you have a backyard and you have space, you can create a tiny pond so that amphibians can just go inside and protect themselves from very high temperatures. You can build rock piles so that lizards can go underneath. All of those things can help animals to navigate through climate change. But ultimately, you will all calm down uh, it will all uh, come down to climate mitigation. We need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions so that these animals do not experience the temperature I'm mentioning in the first place. Um, so there's still some hope. Uh, we just have to push it a bit. <laughs> um, and so I'm not going to finish this talk uh, unless I thank all the people that have been involved. Uh, so I'm doing this massive data synthesis with like hundreds of publications. So I can't do that by myself. So I'm really helped by a lot of people. Of course, thank my university for uh, supporting me. Uh, I acknowledge my privileges, because again, I really uh, care about this. I have a lot of privileges as a white male coming from a rich country. Uh, it's a big reason for why I'm here tonight. And uh, I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands, because uh, Australia was and always will be Aboriginal lands. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for uh, your attention. I hope it's not too depressing and there's still a little bit of hope. And if you have any questions, just feel free to ask. Science show on Eastside 89.7 FM, this time visiting the Pint of Science Festival in Sydney. We will be back with a new science story next week. Bye for now.